0: Take a seat. Um, just take a quick second to introduce Maury Milliken. Uh, he gets to wear a lot of hats today, playing electric and then throwing that off and up on the pulpit. So, um, uh, Maury's a, a chaplain on post, and we're just glad to have him. He's been here for quite a while now. You and Linda and um, his family. Mm-hmm. So, if you guys will, let's welcome Maury together. Thank you. Thanks. Hello, hello. All right. Good morning, everybody. Alright, we're continuing our series on certainty. Certainty from 1 John chapter 5. If you want to turn there in the Bible, it's in your pews in front of you. If you brought a Bible, great. On the ESV Bible, it's page 1023, 1 John chapter 5. You know, when soldiers go to war, most soldiers do business with God before they go. They take care of all that, right? Because you never know. You don't know what's going to happen on the battlefield. You don't know if it's your time, as they say. And so every soldier uh, does business with God to make sure that they're at peace, so that if they should be KIA killed in action or anything should happen, uh, they know that uh, they, they they know where they're going to end up, and that gives them actually a calm and a resolve to to focus on the fight. And I can't tell you how many soldiers I've prayed with before we go over the berm. Uh, once we're in the fight, it's an asymmetric fight that we're fighting now. So. Uh, Every day, you know, there are patrols going out, and every day they want to pray together. They want to pray the Lord's Prayer, and they want to put their hearts at rest. And a of times, you know, I'll have soldiers come up to me and say, Hey, chaplain, would you pray for me today? Let it be any day but today, because today's my anniversary. Or let it be any day but today, because today is my little girl's birthday. You know, I don't want it to be today. So what they're saying is they've counted the cost. They know what it takes to fight the fight, and uh, they're, willing, they're willing to pay the price but there are just some days they'd rather not be that day. All right? So uh, we're talking about eternal life today. And that's, that's how important and how serious and how personal this issue is. You know, sometimes we live in our American bubble. You know, life is comfortable. Life is easy. Life is good. And uh, we forget that this life is it, it's just a It's a moment. And as you get older, you realize that, right? You look back over the years and you go, wow, what happened to my 20s and my 30s and my 40s? And the kids used to be little and now they're all grown up. And whoa, I've got grandchildren. Oh, I've got great-grandchildren. And all of a sudden you're 85 going, what happened to my life? This life is a moment. But it's important what we do in this life. The decisions that we make in this life impact our eternity. Because there is an eternity. I remember laying in my bed at night when I was a kid imagining what eternity must be like. And the oldest person that I knew was my great-grandmother Nichols from Nacogdoches County. And uh, she was about 90 years old. And I remember thinking, wow, 90, like 10 more years, she'll be 100. you know. And she lived actually to 99, just three months short of 100. But I remember thinking 100 years. Eternity is like you live 100 years, but then you don't die. You live another 100 years, but then you don't die. You live another 100 years and you just keep going and going and going, you know, like the Energizer bunny, but even, you know, more significant and powerful is your life keeps going. I remember when I had my son, my firstborn, Peter, when he was born, and I was holding him, looking at him. I was so grateful, and just my heart was full of gladness. And I remember my first thought was, wow, this is the first thing I've ever had that doesn't require batteries. You know, my son didn't require batteries. He was like had a little heartbeat going, and he was alive and living... And I remember thinking, wow, there's so much in store for him in this life. But I want him to know the certainty of the life to come. That there is a life to come. That we're more than just a a bag of chemical bones and chemical interactions. You know, that we don't just rot in the ground. But there's more to us. There's more to this life than this life. There is a life to come. John wants us to be sure of that. The Bible teaches that. We can be certain of eternal life through our faith in Jesus Christ. So let's read the Bible, uh, 1 John chapter 5, page 1023. Let me get there and we'll, we'll read the text uh, this morning. All right, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So John is very concerned that uh, we understand that we have the certainty of eternal life. Because there's a lot of things in this life that set us back. A lot of hardships, a lot of heartache, a lot of disappointments, a lot of frustrations. You know, even kids when they're little, they ask questions like, Why is this happening? Does God really love me? If God loves me, how come I don't, I'm not make an A-plus in this math class? You know, you ever have your kids ask you questions like that? Everybody, everybody wonders about those kind of questions. Why is life hard? Why is it difficult? And so then we begin to question things like our faith and like, is there a God? And does God care about me and love me? And some people go to the extreme and they eventually get bitter and cast God off and say, no, there is no God. He doesn't care. It's better to just trudge my own way through life and just do away with the disappointment that, that there is even a God at all. But there are four essential truths that are spelled out throughout 1 John uh, that we've been studying with Pastor Dave and uh, others throughout this series. The first one is that God is love and he is eternal. God who is love is eternal. Secondly, that God created us, male and female, in his image. It takes both, male and female, to show the full spectrum of who God is. Thirdly, like Adam and Eve... We have all rebelled against God. You know, even I'm standing up here. I'm no better than you. I've, I have rebelled against God. I lived my own life, did it my own way, uh, defied God, disobeyed God's commands and God's will, and done my thing. I have sinned against God like you. And as a result, we are cut off from eternity by all those willful choices of rebellion. And we cannot make our way back to God because we're dead spiritually in our sins and our trespasses. But the good news is that God is on a rescue mission. God is on a rescue mission. And He came into the world not to save, not to condemn us, but to save us. Not to beat us up and make us feel unworthy, but to tell us that He loves us, He cares about us, He's paid the price for our sins, and He wants a relationship with us. And He wants us to spend eternity with Him. All right, so turn to the person next to you and tell them God wants you to spend eternity with Him. Go ahead and do that real quick. So John, so John wants us to be certain about the gift of eternal life. Now, John has a pastoral emphasis uh, here in, in this little passage that we're reading today. He's very concerned that we understand the humanity of Jesus, right? Everybody gets it that he's God. Jesus is God. But he was also fully human, fully God, not 50-50, but 100% God, 100% human. And, and it, it blows the mind, because you know, it's one of those moments because... Uh, He defies anything or everything we've ever seen or known about. Anytime you try to put him in a box, he's outside the box, and he just blows the box up. All right? So the reason that humanity, the humanity of Jesus is so important is because John wants us to understand that he really suffered. He really bled. He really died on the cross. All right? In his humanity, Jesus fully suffered for our sins. In fact, John calls him, in the Gospel of John, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So he's, he's describing Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. You know, prior to Jesus, you know, you had, to, you had to go buy a bull or a goat or a calf or a heifer or some pigeons or some doves. All these different kinds of sacrifices. You had to take them to the temple. You had to get sprinkled. You had to have a priest cut them up, throw them on the fire, burn them up. And your sins were forgiven. You know, thank God we no longer have to go through all that. There was one perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ on the cross, for our sins. And the issue is, do you trust him for that? And does your life live consistently with what you believe? You know, if we're Christians, if we call ourselves Christians, we're to be consistent. We're to be true. And that's what John has been concerned about as the children of God, that we love God and that we love people. Love God and love people And that we make every effort that we can to free our lives from the entanglements and the snares of sin. John also warns us about antichrists. Not the big scary political leaders, but people who deny anything about the humanity or the divinity of Jesus. You know, sometimes you'll talk to people and go, yeah, Jesus, he was a cool dude. Great teacher, great prophet, said a lot of true things, great guy. Well, what's that? They're emphasizing his humanity but denying his divinity. Then you meet others who will say, "Oh, Jesus, he was like a avatar in the sky. You know, he was like a a light, the greatest light shining in the universe. But why would he ever take on human form? I mean, disgusting. It's not. You know, why would he stoop so low? Uh, he wouldn't. In fact, there were a lot of religions in the in the time that John wrote this that were really struggling with the humanity of Jesus. So i want to look at a couple of those. I call these ancient errors, but they kind of intersect with our life today. The first error that I want to talk about that you've heard Dave, Pastor Dave mention is called Gnosticism, starting with a G, G-N-O-S-T, Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a belief that uh, separates the body from the soul. And it emphasizes secret knowledge, that secret knowledge is attained by denying your body, you know, forcing it, neglecting it, uh, despising it, um, almost, if you could, totally emptying yourself of humanity so that your spirit is set free and you rise to this great spiritual awareness. In fact, God is too pure to take on human form. And f- uh, the hum- it's our humanity that's full of sin, so that's what we despise and reject. In fact, God would never have a human son who would take on human form. And so the, uh, the, you, there you see modern expressions of that today, uh, like Hindu asceticism, as depicted in the picture in Neo-Gnosticism. Another ancient uh, error is called Docetism. You may have not ever heard of this one, uh, but this was a very strong belief in the time of Jesus, in the time of John, writing this. And that's that the human form of Jesus was merely a resemblance, without any true reality <laughs> Jesus only seemed to be human, and his body was a phantom. So here we have the phantom Jesus flying in the clouds. And every once in a while you hear these stories about, oh, Jesus appeared. Did you see that? His face was on a building. You know, or his shadow was over here, or, you know, and these people were healed over here. We've got to go to this place because that's where there was this manifestation, this appearance of Jesus as a phantom. Well, that's just ancient docetism being realized today. Why would people be so desperate to travel halfway across the world to go see a shadow, what you can, you can interpret it as anything, on a wall and say that, oh, God is real. Look, he showed up on a wall. I, I don't quite understand that. But it's just it's, uh, it's a new expression, a modern expression of an ancient problem called docetism. Uh, so there are also some modern errors that I wanted to point out today. And there are a lot of problems with Islam. I don't want to bash Islam this morning, but I do want to, pr- I want to focus on one error, one discrepancy between Christianity and Islam. And that is that Islam promotes a Gnostic view of Jesus, that he was a teacher, that he was a prophet, but that he was not the Redeemer. In fact, Islam says that Allah would never let a righteous man suffer like Jesus suffered on the cross. All right? Uh, so here's a, a T-shirt picture of a t-shirt, young Muslim wearing this shirt that says, Muslims believe in Jesus. And in fact, they do. Good Muslims believe in Jesus. But what do they believe about Jesus? They do not believe that he was the Redeemer. He was a prophet in a long line of prophets. He did amazing things like he welcomed children and he lifted up the oppressed and he healed the sick. He did amazing things, but merely as a human prophet, all right, who is subordinate to the final, the great prophet Muhammad who came and brought us the Quran. So even the Quran says they slew him not nor crucified him. This is what the Quran teaches about Jesus. They slew him not nor crucified him. It only looked like that. It appeared so unto them. They slew him not for certain, but Allah took him up unto himself. So this is what Muslims believe that in the crowd, the confusion, the chaos of of Golgotha up there on the hilltop, people are being crucified And Jesus would never be allowed to suffer because he was a righteous man, so Allah took him up to heaven. And in the confusion, they crucified somebody else. They just thought it was Jesus. So this is a modern error that sometimes you can talk about with people, and it's amazing how God still miraculously, amazingly works in the lives of Muslims to draw them to true faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, When they really seek to know the truth about Jesus, they will eventually turn to what are called the people of the book. We are the people of the book. We have the book, right? And they turn to the book and read what the book has to say about Jesus Christ, and many are coming alive in true faith in Jesus Christ. Another uh, modern error is uh, what I call uh, Jesus the Avatar. Here's a picture of Jesus the Avatar. Here he is up flying in the clouds with Vishnu, one of the Hindu gods. Hinduism actually promotes a descetic view of Jesus as an avatar. He's like a spiritual guide among all other spiritual guides. And what's unique about Christians is that Christians pray to Jesus as their avatar to guide them. But he's only an appearance or a manifestation because really you are God. You are the Buddha. And it just takes uh, your your own self-discovery, your own path, your own journey uh, to eventually come to the enlightenment or the awakening that... You are Buddha. You are God. So this is a modern problem that uh, you will... We don't see a lot of it here in Colleen, Texas, but as you get out and interact with people in this cosmopolitan world that we're in, and as we travel around and go to different cultures and places, you'll run into these uh, very strong belief systems that are very different uh, and are actually misinterpretations of the book, of the Bible. So John wanted us to have certainty of belief, to be clear about what we believe. And it's amazing how, you know, life, I said earlier that it's, uh, it's, it's like life is short, it's a flash, it's a twinkling of an eye. You blink and all of a sudden you're 90 years old, right? And you wonder, where did my 90 years go? But at the same time, uh, life can be long as you're living it, you know, when you're living in the present. And sometimes in the present, we run into difficulties, trials, setbacks. Uh, things that make us wonder, you know, where is God? What's happening in my life? And uh, sometimes we're even given into temptations to just say, well, you know, God doesn't really care about my life anyway. I'm going to do whatever I want. And that's how we fall into errors. That's how we stumble into error and even the problem. We even self-deceive ourselves into doing the wrong thing. But the church a long time ago developed two very important creeds. And a lot of you probably grew up with these creeds in different churches. Churches. Uh, the mainstream Protestant churches emphasize the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Now, the Nicene Creed was actually written first. It was written in 325 A.D. All right, the emperor Constantine gathered all the, all the leaders throughout the empire because do you remember the story about Constantine? Uh, he, he was uh, leading the army, and uh, he had a vision one day. Uh, and the vision was the cross, and so he decided to become a Christian, and uh, that's when uh, the ar- his army started wearing the cross on their uniforms and on their shields. And eventually, when all the enemies were defeated, we had the uh, Byzantine Empire at Byzantium, or the Constantinople, uh, which today is modern-day Istanbul in Turkey. But... Uh, He gathered all the spiritual leaders together and said, look, there's a lot of different beliefs throughout the land. And I just want us to be clear about what we believe. So they had the Council of Nicaea. And at the Council of Nicaea, they developed the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed does two things. It emphasizes the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. So it reads something like this. I'll just read parts of it. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, So what's he emphasizing there? The only begotten Son of God. The humanity of Jesus. He was born. Begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light. What's he emphasizing there? Divinity. Very God of very God. Begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father. Who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. And was incarnate of the Holy Spirit by the Virgin Mary. What's he emphasizing there? Again, his humanity. But also that divinity because the Holy Spirit was present in his incarnation. And he was made a man and he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again. The... uh, the Apostles' Creed, which is shorter and therefore more well-known and used in our churches when we were growing up and even in some churches today, was written in about 710 A.D., a little bit later than the, the uh, Nicene Creed. But the, the Apostles' Creed also emphasizes the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. The Apostles' Creed says, you, you're probably familiar with this, uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. Now he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So it's an amazing, powerful summary of the Gospels, and emphasizes both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. And that's what John's trying to do here in this passage uh, when he's talking about the water, the blood, and the spirit. He's talking about the unique nature of Jesus and how uh, the water, the blood, and the spirit testify to who Jesus is. Because in him, we have eternal life. Um, I just want to tell a story about um, one time when I was a student at the university. There was this guy who came from Colorado. This was down at the University of Texas. And he was walking on what's called the West Mall, which is the free speech area of the campus. So he's walking around, and this guy had this long white robe on. And he had long silver hair and a long gray beard. And he was just just striking, you know, just a striking uh, visual image, very different. Then all the other students who are walking around in flip-flops and short pants and backpacks. You know, this guy's got this long robe on, long hair, long beard. and He's got a guitar. And he was just singing these beautiful songs. And uh, then he gathered a crowd and he put the guitar down. And he basically told everybody there, I am Jesus. Wow. Wow. that's That's a pretty remarkable claim right there. You know, to say I am Jesus. And so then he launches into all these great philosophical truths and great ideas and how amazing he was and how basically at the end of the day he wanted some of us to follow him, you know, and become his disciples. I said, I only have one question for you, man. He says, what's that? I said, show me your hands, your nail-scarred hands. Well, he didn't have nail-scarred hands. I said, well, the Jesus of the Bible said that he was scarred from the crucifixion. And he appeared to his disciples and he showed them his hands and he showed them his side right he showed convincing proofs as to who he was and i said you know man you're just it's sad it's sad you're an imposter but you know you're you're a danger too to to come out here and proclaim yourself to be jesus a lot of people might say oh he's, just, he's got mental condition and he needs to go to mental health or behavioral health Now, this guy was pretty sound pretty reasonable uh, just deceived spiritually in, into who he was. And he had kind of a mixture of Christianity and Hinduism, Buddhism kind of mixed in there too. So kind of the philosophy that we can all be Jesus. We can all be Jesus if we just shed this things of this world, put on robes, grow our hair out long and our beards, and follow this guy. So t- wholly inadequately convincing uh, to me of what it meant to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, Linda and I have traveled the world together I've traveled quite a bit as a soldier, but Linda and I have traveled into particular parts of the Muslim world where we've interacted with uh, Muslims on on theological levels, talking together about, about God and about our faith in Jesus Christ and how they understand him. And uh, I remember one time Linda was talking to a woman uh, in the Hagia Sophia. It's the uh, ancient church um, in Istanbul, and uh, she was talking to this woman who was, Obviously, a Muslim, fully robed, black black uh, robes, you know, from head to toe. All, she, all you could see was her uh, face. Not really a burqa, but she was allowed to show her face. Turns out she was from Saudi Arabia. She was there with her husband. We're touring the Hagia Sophia, which originally was a church, then it became a mosque, and uh, today it's a museum. And as they interacted, you know, Linda was talking about her personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And this woman began talking about her personal relationship with Muhammad and with uh, Allah. And it was just interesting how we interacted. But the key difference in when we interact with Muslims is that Jesus suffered and died on the cross for our sins. None of the other prophets did that. None of the other gods have done that. That's what makes Jesus supremely unique and different is not only his nature, that he was human and divine but his mission, which was to come and give his life, to pour out his life blood for us so that we could have a relationship with God again. Okay, so the water. What's the water all about here in verse 6? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Okay, so the water here, obviously our thoughts turn to baptism. And in fact, Jesus himself was baptized. And at his baptism, uh, John called him the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have account that God spoke at Jesus' baptism. One of the times that God spoke so that everyone could hear. And God said what? This is my son. With him I am well pleased. And And the Spirit came down upon Jesus in the form of a dove. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all represented together there at Jesus' baptism. So Jesus was baptized not because he was a sinner. Jesus was baptized to show us the way in which we should walk and how we should follow him to make all things right or to to do all things in righteousness. So Jesus was baptized, calls us to follow him in baptism. And it's a very powerful, not only a very powerful sign and a very powerful symbol, but it can be a very powerful spiritual experience for you. If you have not been baptized and you believe in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to follow Jesus into the waters of baptism. So taken uh, in the light of the whole counsel of the Word of God, this talk about the witness of the water is talking about baptism. Baptism is very important for us. It tells it reminds us who we are. In baptism, we are. a lot of people think the washing rep- uh, you know, represents the cleansing of sin, but it's more than that. The Bible speaks about this is when we uh, become members of the body of Christ, that we are adopted into the family of God, and we take on a new identity. No longer are we the rebel. No longer are we the sinner, the outcast, the outlander, but we are children of God. Loved by God, cared for by God, welcomed into the family. And that's what baptism uh, is saying to us. That's what baptism reminds us of. And so we're to remember our baptism and remember that we are baptized Christians. When we are baptized in water, we're following Jesus. We're being buried with him in his death symbolically. When we come up out of the water, we're being raised in his resurrection to new life. And we have a new identity as children of God. We're adopted into the family of God. And we belong to God. And nothing can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. I've also baptized soldiers before going over the berm into Iraq. And that was very powerful. So, you know, you got all these guys who are going to war, going into the fight. And uh, they're they're remembering how they were raised. And they're remembering uh, their values and their, their teachings where they grew up in their churches. And all of a sudden, it becomes very meaningful and very personal for them. And they say, wait a minute, I've never been baptized. Hey, chaplain, can you baptize me? And It's awesome to, to baptize soldiers in the desert, uh, to see them be baptized. and, and to, It gives them that peace and that assurance, you know, that no matter what comes in life, I know who I am and I know where I'm going. All right, the second witness here is the blood. And this, of course, is speaking about the blood of Jesus that was spilled on the cross. Here's what uh, the Bible teaches in John chapter 19. This is Jesus hanging on the cross. Okay, he's hanging on the cross and it's preparation day, which means they're getting ready for the Sabbath. Right? So they've got to clean everything up, which means getting all the dead, stinking, rotting bodies off of the crosses. So they go out to the crosses to take down these bodies, but some guys are still alive. So they break their legs so that they collapse and under the weight of their own frame, they will suffocate on the cross. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was not alive. He had died. So they did not break his legs. John 19, verse 32 says this. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out of Jesus both blood and water. Blood and water. So these are the two witnesses that testify to who Jesus is. I don't know all the medical reasons why water would come out of the body with blood. Maybe somebody, subject matter expert on that, could could enlighten us all. But in this case, John was very uh, impacted by this experience. And it causes him to say that this is why blood and water are important witnesses. He also references Jesus' words about his own blood when he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. John chapter 6. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So clearly, Jesus is not talking about his literal flesh and his literal blood. He's referencing the Passover meal, which Jesus came to fulfill. We don't eat the Passover meal in its entirety now. Every once in a while, we'll have a service where we'll do that to, to understand what all the elements of the Passover meal were and why that's important. But Jesus came to fulfill the Passover lamb, the Passover meal, as the Lamb of God. And in doing so, he just reduced it to two gifts, the bread and the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Christ and the blood representing his body that was his, his blood that was spilled on the cross. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, as you can see, we are remembering the payment that Jesus made for our sins, Pastor Dave is focused on this word, propitiation. And that's what propitiation is. Payment. Jesus paid for our sins with His blood on the cross. You know, a lot of times we, we go through life and we, we know that we're sinners, we know we've made mistakes, and we carry our own sins on our back. We carry them around in a rucksack, right? And we think that we deserve to, to bear those sins. And God is saying, you know, why are you carrying your own sins? If you believe in Me and you trust Me, Lay your sins down at the foot of the cross because Jesus has fully paid for all your sins. There's no reason for us to carry our own sins around and to carry around the guilt and the shame. We can be free from the power of sin. We can be free from the guilt and the shame of sin. And we can begin that healing journey, which takes a lifetime of uh, being free from poor decision-making and the consequences that come with that. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, remembering that the the payment for our sins has been made and that Jesus poured out his lifeblood on the cross that we might live forever. Remember, the passage here is about certainty. Certainty about what? Certainty about eternal life. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are two signs that God gives Christians to remind us of the certainty of eternal life. You have a new identity. You're not a rebel. You're not a sinner. You're not an outcast. You are a child of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. And your sins are forgiven. We're reminded of that every time that we have the Lord's Supper. And then there's the Spirit. So what is the role of the Spirit? Sadly, sometimes when Christians gather for the Lord's Supper or even for baptism, these become just rituals. You know, you go through the motions. But the Spirit is the one who makes baptism and the Lord's Supper come alive to us. So the Lord's Supper is more than just a memorial service. We are remembering Jesus and what He's done for us. But in remembering Jesus, in that process, the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, bringing our faith alive, making us stronger, helping us to focus and be clearer about our life, how we're to live our life in this life, and the promise of eternal life in the life to come. The Spirit was at work at Jesus' baptism. The Spirit came down upon him in in the form of a dove. The Spirit was at work when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. Do you remember the story of Nicodemus when he came to Jesus at night and he said, hey, Jesus, you're speaking the truth in love. I want to enter into the kingdom of God. What do I have to do? And he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He says, whoa, I'm an old man. How can I get back into my mother's womb and be born again? He said, Nicodemus, you're missing the point. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to the spirit. So you had a natural birth, but you need a spiritual birth as well. And the spirit makes that happen. The spirit makes that happen as we Trust in Jesus Christ and look to him for the promise of eternal life. And then finally, the Spirit was at work in Jesus' disciples when they were grumbling about his saying, when he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. They were like, whoa, this is too much. We can't handle this, Jesus. You're talking about cannibalism. And he wasn't talking about that at all. He was talking about fulfilling the Passover meal through his death and through his resurrection. And uh, they, they had a hard time hearing this. But here's what Jesus said to them. Do you take offense at this? Then what you were to then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who still do not believe. And some disciples walked away that day. It was too much they couldn't handle it. They just couldn't handle that saying and they couldn't handle the the claims of Christ. So what about you? What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe he was a nice guy, teacher, prophet? Do you believe he's a phantom, a spirit? Do you believe what the church says about Christ, that he is fully God, that he's fully man, that he descended, he came to earth, became a man, was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and that he rose again. Some people have questions. And, and sometimes those questions are uh, very important and, and uh, very real questions. And, you know, God is very patient with our questions. I remember one time I was, uh, my younger brother was having some questions about God, and in fact, he, uh, we were walking around uh, a lake one time and he was telling me about his struggles and he told me that he'd come to a place where he didn't believe in God anymore. And I just kept walking with him and he, I was kind of quiet and he says, well, why are you so quiet? And I said, well, you know, the last thing I want to do, brother, is judge you. And he says, well, what do you think about my statement? I said, well, I think you're on a journey and you've got some questions, but I just want to say that you may not believe in God, but he still believes in you. And that was a reassurance in his life. Eventually, my brother came back to a place of faith, and his faith is very alive, very real for him right now. My son once struggled with uh, some issues in his life. He was a pastor's kid, a chaplain's kid, you know, difficult place to be. And at one point, he kind of just chucked it all and walked away from it all. And I was talking with him once out at uh, Coeur d'Alene Lake out in Idaho. Is that in Idaho? Yeah, that's in Idaho, isn't it? And... uh, we were uh, out at the lake there and he said to me, you know, Dad, I don't believe in God anymore. And I, and I just listened to him and he said, uh, you know, in fact, if there is a God, I just wish he'd strike me down right now with lightning to show me that he's real. And I said, well, son, he's not going to do that. And he said, why not? I said, because he loves you. He loves you. He's not going to strike you down with lightning. And that was a turning point in my son's life. And now my son is very strong in his faith, following the Lord and uh, doing great things. So people have questions along the way. And rather than just hammering them and judging them and cutting them off, we need to hang in there with them and journey with them and uh, remind them of the love of God, remind them uh, that God never gives up on, on people. He never gives up on us. And uh, people may struggle and have a different, different path you know, for finding their way to Christ. Uh, but we're there to be there to serve them and love them and, and help them reconnect with their creator. I mentioned uh, Pascal's Wager in the first service this morning. I'll, I'll reference it again. Pascal's Wager is a an argument or a logical argument that Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher, presented, I think it was in the 17th century. But it goes something like this. If, if God does not, well, we'll start with the other part. If God does not exist, all right, and you get to the end of life, and you've lived a good life, and you've believed, and you've obeyed the commandments, and you've done everything right, you get to the end, you haven't really lost anything. You know, you you lived a good life. But, if God does exist, and you live your life as if He doesn't exist, you get to the end, you've lost everything. So, it's a sad state to be in, to come to the end of life and to be standing on the doorstep of eternity and realize that you, you've wagered everything and you lost the wager on the possibility that God is not real. So Blaise was saying, hey, you should rather risk the smart option, which is that God probably exists. Now, the criticism of Pascal's wager is that that's not authentic faith. That's not authentic belief. And in a sense, that's a correct criticism. That's why the Holy Spirit must be at work in our lives, making our faith real, making it authentic so that our faith is true and that it's uh, real and that it can survive the storms of life because there will be storms in this life. There will be hard times that test us and try us. And if our faith isn't very deep and it's not very strong, it's not going to really matter to us. And we're going to get all bitter and walk away from those experiences uh, and possibly get on the wrong path, but when our faith is strong and deep and focused, we're able to get through all the trials, the sufferings, the hard times of this life, and to stay focused, holding on to that hope of heaven. Right, holding on to that that hope and that uh, that promise of eternity. I'm getting to the point in life where I've seen my grand my great grandparents die. I've seen my grandparents die. My father died two years ago. Uh, my mother's still alive. But a lot of relatives, I've done the, the funerals for my, all my aunts and uncles, my great aunts and uncles. Uh, as the family minister to, to the family, I've been involved in a lot of funerals. And I always think at those funerals, there are some funerals where I do have grief and I have some tears. You know, I love those people and I'll miss them. But I'm often asked, you know, how I'm able to do those funerals. And I, I think it just comes back to this strong hope that I have that, you know what, they're, they're not gone forever. They have gone ahead into heaven, and I will see them again. We will see those who have gone before us, those that we love and care about, those that we miss, whether that's a grandparent or a child or a, a spouse, brother or sister. We have the promise of the hope of heaven. So when we have the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that our sins are forgiven And that we have the promise of eternal life. The presence of the Spirit is here this morning at the Lord's table. Making us certain that we belong to God. And that we have life. In this life and in the life to come. So brothers and sisters be comforted. Be reassured by this truth. If you have trusted Jesus Christ for your salvation. You have the promise of eternal life. And God will make it true in your life, in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for coming into the world uh, not to condemn us, beat us up, pound us into the ground. You came into the world to save us, to lift us up, to give your life as a ransom for us, to give your life as propitiation, as payment uh, for our sins. And Lord, we just take the moment here this morning to admit before you We are sinners. We have made mistakes. We have fallen short. But we believe the good news that you sent your son into the world to pour out his lifeblood on the cross, to spill his blood as payment for our sins. So forgive us, Lord. Raise us up in the power of your spirit. Encourage us during this time of communion, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to invite those who are serving to come forward at this time.